you, Matt. Great song this morning. Good to see you here this morning. It's definitely been a weekend where it's better to be inside than it's been outside, right? It's kind of nasty, so uh, we're glad that you are here today. It's good to see you. We're continuing in the book of Esther, chapter number four this morning. And we come to a unique, what I think is very unique time in the narrative of the story of Esther. And today the title is this, A Christian's Duty in the Time of Crisis. By definition, crisis is a time of difficulty, it's trouble, it's danger. It's time when we need to make a difficult decision, possibly. As we were going through the song service this morning, I was catching some of the lyrics of some of the songs that we were singing, and I'm sure this could be done on any given morning, but listen to this. Through the storm, he is Lord. That wasn't the first song that we had in Cornerstone. Joy to the world. Before there was joy to the world, God had to do what? He had to die. He had to, that was some sad times around that, but boy, that brought joy to you and I. We can accept him as Savior. The last song, whatever may pass or whatever lies before me. Don't we all go through things? We go through difficulties. You may be sitting in here this morning, and you are getting ready to make a decision. You've made one, and that's kind of where we find Mordecai this morning. So in the, in the story of Esther, let's pick up with chapter number four. Let's read through it, and we'll go back and break it down a little bit. Then we'll get into our practical application this morning. Chapter number four says this, When Mordecai perceived all that was done... Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out to the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And he came before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So it's a time of mourning. It's a time of difficulty, if you will. Verse number 4 says, So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her, she's in the protection of the, the royal household, so to speak. So when the queen exceedingly grieved, she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and say, take away your sackcloth from him, and he received it not. Then he called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains whom he had appointed to attend her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. What are you doing? Why are you outside the king's gates doing this? So Hatak went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate, and Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. He also gave him a copy of the writing of decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, to declare it unto her, to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for the people. Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And again, Esther spake to Hatak and gave commandment to Mordecai, all the king's servants, all the people, the provinces, to know that whatsoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king and to the inner court who is not called, there is one law of him, and that's death. It says, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai Esther's words. And now the dialogue between the two get a little bit more serious. And Esther was told by Mordecai, think not of yourself. Don't think of who you are, that you are going to escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. 
For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then there shall enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. You're not going to be safe. And who knoweth what, whether thou art come. And this is kind of the popular or the key verse from the chapter 4. For the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me. And neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. And also in my maidens will fast likewise and will go into the king which is according, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way, did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now let's go back. We're, we're talking about a time of crisis, a time of adversity, a time of difficulty this morning. And then when you look at verse number 1, it says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done. What's that talking about? Well, let's go back and remember the possible genocide that was coming from chapter number 3. If you go back to chapter number 3, verse number 5, watch what the Bible said. When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, this has been a couple, well, probably a few weeks ago now, as we remember from what Colin gave us, that Haman was full of wrath. In verse number 6, he just didn't want to kill Mordecai, but he says to destroy all the Jews that were, with, that were, that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And then in verse number 13, it says, The letters were sent by the post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish to all the Jews. This is where we find ourselves this morning. So then in turn, Mordecai says, Okay, well, it's not just me that's going to be mourning this. Mordecai's mourning. It's going to be all the Jews. Matter of fact, I'm going to put on sackcloth. I'm going to put on these goats or camel's hair. I'm going to go out into the whole, I'm going to go into the king's gate where I'm not supposed to be, and I'm going to make a spectacle of myself. I'm going to go, I am going to thrash around, I'm going to cry, I'm going to wail. Now that's, that's a little different for us today, okay? When something happens normally to us, obviously culture being different, we, we're one of those that may, you, you, we don't see that a lot of just wailing, it's more of a quiet sobbing. Mordecai said, I'm not doing that. I got, I got to know what's going on. Esther's got to know what's going on. Now, it's kind of been suggested through commentary that Mordecai may have felt a little bit of self-reproach for having provoked Haman, but what I think is more true is he's worried about literally the race being wiped out. That's what he's worried about, and that's why he's got to have a solution, and he's got to get Esther's attention. So that's Mordecai's mourning. So now we see the dialogue. We pick up in verse number 4. And Esther says this, Mordecai, you need to change your clothes. <laughs> you need to get out of those clothes. Get in some clothes where if the king's even there, you can come and you can see what's going on. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay exactly what I'm going to do there. Now, here's a reminder for you. Esther probably wanted to keep her Jewishness a secret. Remember in chapter number 2, Mordecai said, hey, don't, don't tell anybody this. Now, we know why that's happening. Don't ruin this for me, Mordecai. Verse number 5, what are you doing, Mordecai? Why are you doing this? Why are you pitching such a fit? She doesn't know. So in verse number 6, we find out that Hatak is sent out to find out from Mordecai, what in the world are you doing? And Mordecai brings him three pieces of information. The, one of this information was this. It is a report of the demise of the Jews. Esther, we're dead. We're dead people walking. Okay, that's what we are. Number two, there was an amount of money offered to the king to destroy them. If you look back in chapter number three, verse number nine, it was 10,000 talents of silver. Now, I did a little bit of, of we were in here at the office the other day, and I was asking, I asked Matt, I said, Colin, how, how much money are we talking about here? 
So I so this this amount of money could have been anywhere, and I know this is a large gap, but there were we're talking millions to billions of dollars that was going to be traded out for the lives. So that's where they were at. And then, and, and the third thing he brings is a copy of the writing of the law. It's been stamped. It's going to happen. Verse number 8 basically says, please go, Esther, and beg for the life of the Jews. Hatak come, comes back with a, with a message, and Esther says, look, I've not seen the king in 30 days. I've not been there in 30 days. So you think that the life of a queen would be pretty good. I think maybe she may have lived in a little bit of fear as she was in the royal household. You remember this. The irony was this, that one queen failed to come before him, and she was gotten rid of. Now you have another queen that he has not seen in 30 days, and she probably remembers Remember what happened to the last one. So maybe the royal household is not what it was. And I think right here in verse number 10 through 12, as, we, as I think maybe some fear may have been in, in Esther's mind, there's three things up on the screen that I think, this is kind of a message within the message is this. Anytime in a time of crisis, I think three things can be said, no matter how severe, how the difficulty is, that three things can be said. Number one, I think in a time of crisis, there is a calculated cost. There is a, there's a risk or there's going to be a reward when you have a difficulty at hand. Number two, there's going to be a consecrated commitment. Esther asked the people, not just her, the whole Jewish people, to stop, to pray, and to fast. When a time of trouble, difficulty comes up, that's usually the last thing we seem to do, isn't it? We try to go ask, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, maybe in our own means, but we need to go to the Lord. There's a calculated cost. There's a consecrated commitment. And number three, there may be this. There may be a challenging confrontation. And if that's going to be the case to take care of your difficulty, your, ad your adversity, you better prepare and plan for that. What's the outcome going to be? What's the outfall going to be maybe? So that's kind of the message within the message because Esther's role, her role changes in the chapter. They don't know she's Jewish, but she's going to have to show her color, so to speak, if they're going to, have to, if they're going to live. And that may be the case in something that we're going through. You're weighing something out. I don't want to confront them, but you're going to have to. Verse number 13 and 14. Esther, think of all the Jews that are in crisis. You're going to be in the same situation when your secret is out. And this is something that I thought was very unique in the chapter because I didn't, as I was studying this, I was thinking, why would Mordecai do this? But in verse number 14, watch what he says. He says, if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, watch, watch the language here, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews, watch what he says, from another place. And I was studying this, and commentators said they wondered what Mordecai was doing here. Was he literally implying that divine punishment was coming this way or would fall on Esther? Or was he threatening Esther that if you don't tell, I'm going to tell? That's how serious he was about Haman's decree. Verse number 14 also mentions for such a time as this. 
And he reinforces the idea to Esther, Mordecai's Esther, all the life and series of unusual events that's taken place for you, you're here for a greater purpose. She'd been set up for these special assignments, saving the Jews from the impending genocide that was going to come. And then as we finish out the chapter, verses 15 through 17, Mordecai says, this is what you need to do. Esther agrees. And it says, if she was implying that all the Jews, not just her, were called for such a time as this. And she says, you know what? We all need to be on the same page with this. Not just me, but all the Jews. So from Esther chapter 4, what do we take away? What are, our, what are our takeaways before we get into this practical part is this. Esther, once introduced as passive, obedient, silent person, now she resolves to approach the king and tell him exactly what's going on and what she thinks. And she says this, if I perish, I'll perish. That's where she's at today. So my question to you right before we pray this morning is where do you stand today in your time of crisis? You've been through some. Now you're here. Don't worry. You're going to go through some more. What can we learn from God's word today as we look at the narrative of our story? Crisis can come from family. Crisis can come from work. Crisis can come from inter interpersonal relationships and and the people of God this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something special for me as I pray. Crisis can also come in the form of religion. Some of you in here may, in this morning, you may have religion, but what you don't have is you don't have a relationship. And man, that weighs heavy. As I'm up here and I'm trying to wrestle through what to say, the, the heaviness of somebody in, in here underneath my voice may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So as I pray... Those of you that know Jesus, pray with me this morning that those that don't, that their eyes would be open. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this chapter. And Lord, I pray that you would help as we look at the practical application from it, God, that you would open the eyes, the heart eyes, if you will, of someone in here this morning that doesn't know you. God, we know that times of crisis are going to come. We know that times of difficulty and adversity Lord, it helps shapes us. We'll talk about that here just in a few minutes, God. But I just pray, Lord, that you would move and your Holy Spirit, God, would open up the eyes of one in here this morning, Lord, that may be in the crisis of religion. I pray that you would help us this day. Your name we do pray. Amen. Well, what do we take away practically from the chapter, chapter number four here of Esther? I think we take away three things. Number one, I think we take away the idea of appropriate lamenting. Now, what in the world is lamenting? Well, lament, lamenting, lamenting is literally learning to grieve with those around us. I think, I, take, I think we take that away. Number two, I think we take away this. I think we take away from the story assured solidarity, the union and fellowship of the believers. And I think we also take this away that there is an appointed divine intervention in all of our lives where literally we got to meet God at some way. At some way. And remember this, in his timing, always perfect. You've been going through a crisis and you're thinking, God, where are you? God, where are you? What are you going to do? And all of a sudden, God shows up and does his thing. And you're like, oh, well, I, I get it now. I understand why I had to wait. I understand why I was told no that first time. 
But those are three things I see this morning. So let's kind of break them down. The first one is an appropriate lamenting. To lament by definition is this. It's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Now look, I'm not talking about just drama, okay? We all know those people in lives that everything is a big deal. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about, I I read this quote, that lamenting is a language for dealing with, not solving, but dealing with the problem of suffering. Now some of us in here have gone through more than that than others. And here's here's the situation. We must acknowledge that in our lives but how are we to acknowledge that in other people's lives there's where our Christian duty comes in so here in our passage Mordecai and the Jews he didn't hide his pain matter of fact he thought his people were going to be annihilated he wanted everybody to know he wanted the whole household to know remember this lamenting is not a free pass to God's complaint department. Some people, you don't say, hey, how are you doing? But you know why? They'll tell you. <laughs> Ten minutes later, you're like, I was just I was trying to be nice. <laughs> I was just trying to be nice. <laughs> Lamenting is not a free pass to God's complaint department. It's the chief way Christians process grief in God's presence. That's what lamenting is. Does the Bible devote passages of Scripture to, to lamenting? Yeah, the book of Lamentations is one. Psalms three, Psalm 6, 3 says this, My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Psalms 130, verse 1 says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lamentations 1, verses 20 to 22 says, Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels, literally my insides are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth at home, there is as death. They have heard that I sigh, there is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou will bring the day thou hast called, and thou shalt be likened to me. Let all their wickedness come before thee and unto them, as thou hast done unto me for all thy transgressions. For my sighs are many. And my heart is vain. There is a time when it's a good time to go before God and say, I'm here, I'm sorrowful, I have no other way out but you. What does that do for us? Appropriate lamenting can shape who we are as Christians. How can we do this? Now listen to this. There's five ways. We recognize God's wisdom and our finiteness. We don't know everything. How many times have you walked through a funeral service line and someone comes up to you and they say this to you, I know exactly what you're going through. You're like, no, you don't. (laughs) You can't know what I'm going through. They mean well, but they don't know what you're going through. Sorrow and grief can be very disorienting. It's hard to rebound from that, isn't it? Learning to, and looking in God in our pain reminds us of our, of our limitations and God's power over our lives. So it's his wisdom and our finiteness. Number two, we learn trust. Lament is a direct expression of how we trust God. The harder the times, the more sadness, the more trust. Well, we don't, we don't have a hard time. We don't have a hard time trusting when everything's going well. We have a hard time trusting when we're in those sad times. And when we learn those things, 
we're able to trust just a little bit more. What about number three? We understand more about God's grace and love. As God meet, meets and helps us, we see that his faithfulness is not based, thank, thank the Lord, on our behavior. He is gracious and loving, and sh we should never doubt that. We have the cross as a reminder every day of his grace and his love. Number four, we become better neighbors. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, when I have, when I have had grief and sorrow, I can be more aware of your sorrow. And that's when I can walk up to you and I can say, hey, I know exactly what you're going through. Let's talk sometime. We, we're just better, we're better Christian neighbors if we do that. And then number five. Now this one's tough. This is the sad part of the sermon this morning. We're going to get to the good part. We walk in Jesus' steps. Did Jesus know grief and sorrow? Oh, you bet he did. He knew it quite well. Mark 14, I'm not going to read all the passages for sake of time, but Mark 14, 32 through 42, you remember that Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, of course, he's, he's praying. In verse number 33, he said, He taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and saying to them, My soul, listen to this, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Now you know the rest of the story. And he went forward a little, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He even said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, what I do, but what thou wilt. In verse number 37. I, I, in, there's some, some things when you read Scripture, when you get to heaven, don't you want to go, I want to see that played back on film. I wanna, can you reenact that for us, guys? Can you kind of reassemble and do this? And as verse number 37 says, and he cometh, and he findeth them. I mean, they're out. Their slobber's coming out. I mean, they're gone. Couldst thou not watch one hour? Just, just an hour. Watch ye pray, lest ye enter into, watch ye pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And boy, that's where we are. <laughs> Our flesh is so weak. Jesus knew what sorrow was. We're going we're to have some as well, too. Just as he knew sorrow, we are going to experience some of that. So there is a time where lamenting is needed in difficulties and adversity. Now let's get to the good part. All right, let's get to the smiles, all right? Not to any of the sad faces. What about this one? There is an assured solidarity. And that's learning fellowship with God's people. This is the good part. Solidarity, by definition, is just the union or fellowship arising from common responsibilities, interests. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how many of you in here were. We, I got a text this week, and I was invited to eat hot wings. Now, look. I like hot wings. I don't like stuff that I, that's so hot that my mouth can't, don't like that. Some people do. So I understand last night a few men, I heard them coming this morning. Oh, oh. I mean, you hear them coming in. Oh, I'm hurting this morning. It's probably not a good thing to, 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 to gather around. You, you take away some hurt. So I'm going to try to get them second service as well too. But they gathered around some wings last night. It's a little bit of hot sauce. 
You know this, church, the need to feel wanted, the need to belong to something, to being in a group, being together, I don't care how old, it starts from here and it goes to here. It's the need to feel wanted. The other side of, of, of solidarity would then be loneliness. It would be isolation. Some people say this, I'm on an island. Nobody knows what I'm going through. I thought about this. When you, when you get to those places, those are places of struggle for us. When you think nobody else knows what we're going through, we get there, we struggle, we question ourselves in those places. We, sometimes we can lose our identity in those places. And that's not what God wanted us to do. I found a report on loneliness and isolation. Listen to some of these numbers. A report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine points out that more than a third of adults age 45 and older feel lonely, and nearly one-fourth of adults age 65 and older are considered to be socially isolated. Older adults are at increased risk for loneliness and social isolation because they're more likely to face factors such as living alone, the loss of family and friends, or chronic illness. That's the opposite of what solidarity is. Look in verse number 16. Look in verse number 16 of your passage. There's a word there that I want to point out to you. It says this, go together, what's the next word? All. All. Esther said, go gather, it's not just going to be me, it's going to be all the Jews that are present in Shushan. In Shushan. Remember this, in a time of crisis, there is a time, there is a place where there is a proper way to complain. There is a proper way to do it. As, as a U.S. citizen, we're not going to let, hopefully you wouldn't let somebody come and just break the law. You see somebody in a store and they're taking something. I thought I was going to have one of those moments the other night. Um, Elizabeth had a little get-together at the house with a bunch of ladies. I wasn't going to be there, so it, <laughs> I was going to be gone. And so I went to a store, and I was looking at some shoes, and I saw a guy. And, and this is where I, I was kind of like, what's, what's this fella doing? I noticed I was kind of looking. He kept looking over at me like, are you looking at me? I was like, mm, yeah, I'm looking at you. Because <laughs> I know what he's going to do. We, we don't let those things pass. At least we shouldn't let those things pass. But when trouble does come, when problems do arise, when adversity comes, sometimes just us is not enough. We need we. We need the collective help and support of God's people. We need to gather up as a team, don't we? We need prayer from the church when one of you is sick, when I'm sick, when they're sick. You find out bad health news, let's start to pray about that. We need support and love when a work setback finds us in a tough spot. Hey, how can we be of help to you? Men. Some of you men have a group of men that you text that keeps you accountable, and you need that. When temptations arise and you're like, oh, let me, let me get on here. I need, I, need, I need some encouragement. Men, you need that. Ladies, that Bible study that you look forward to every week keeps you encouraged, keeps you refreshed in God's Word. Keep doing that. Don't be alone. Teenagers, let me talk to you a second. If there's any of you in here, you keep each other accountable. I've been dealing with young people for 20-some years, and I remember back, I remember back teaching, and I used to say words like VCR. 
okay? <laughs> Remember those things, those dinosaur things? And, and, and then you teach 15 years, and you're like, you say VCR, and they're like, what is that? I don't know what a VCR is. Those things change. But teenagers in general, young people, they want to feel a part of something. And how you do that in this place is you keep each other accountable. Why were you not at church last night? You ask them, where are you at? You're supposed to be here. I hope you keep each other accountable. Men, women, children, when you're not here, you're missed. We need to be together in fellowship. We need some solidarity around us. Just as Esther had to be brave to face the king, she would not do it until that intercessory fast by Mordecai and all the Jews that were there and Shushan. A couple verses that I found that helps us in those times. Psalms 9 verse 10 says, And they know thy name, they'll put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Be in fellowship with God. And just for sake of time, we're going to, another one, Psalm 37 verses 1 through 5. Go back and read that. So there's an appointed, or excuse me, an appropriate lamenting. There's a time to grieve. There's an assured solidarity. There's a time to come together. But lastly, there is a, an appointed divine intervention. And that's learning to live on God's schedule and God's timing. Now, this is going to be hard to do. Waiting, no, maybe, later, all those type of words. What did Esther want them to do? Fast and pray. Fast and pray. Now, look, I'm not going to come up here and give you this morning how to fast. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I don't know that much about fasting. But I am going to do this. I am going to challenge myself. And I am going to challenge you that when difficulty arises, and I know we don't like to because them chicken wings were good last night. That steak dinner that, man, we, we plan. I mean, we, we plan months out. When you go on vacation, the big thing you do, oh, we're eating here. Oh, we're, we're going here. We don't get to go here much. We're, we're going to make sure we get we plan on that eating. We don't say, you know what, Tuesday afternoon, I don't think we'll eat. Mm-mm, uh That just don't happen. We plan on it. But when we go through times of difficulty, here's an option. Pray fast. I found a quote that says this, the concept of fasting is presented in the Bible as a way of God's people as individuals or as a body to express humility Sorrow, repentance, seriousness in prayer, and desire for, man, for God's manifest presence. In trying times, Jesus encourages believers to pray and fast. In fact, he did it. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4 says, Then when he was led up to the Spirit and to the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, not one meal. And afterward, he wasn't hungered. In Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, they may not appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear unto men to fast. But thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father 
which is in secret, shall reward you how? Openly. Shall reward you openly. So, again, the challenge is before us as we want that divine intervention from God, that a divine appointment that we want to see. Matt, you can go ahead and come up. A story of crisis we'll finish with today, and I'll ask you, where are you at? The year was 2005. It was in some of those Louisiana parishes there in New Orleans. A young lady named Conlon roamed, lived there. She was only 11 years old at the time. She's retelling the story. Now she's 26, and she's recalling when Hurricane Katrina hit their home. Now let me remind you, Hurricane Katrina was resulted in about almost 1,400 deaths in the U.S. Gulf Coast. Storm surges got 20 foot high. Uh, it was one of the worst disasters in U.S. history. $125 billion was done in damages. And this is what she says about Hurricane Katrina. She's recalling what happened to her as an 11-year-old girl. She says, Hurricane Katrina was the first time I experienced a real loss and uncertainty. In the days leading up to the storm, I didn't truly comprehend what was happening around me. I was only 11. My family's evacuation plans became a reality just one day before Katrina hit New Orleans and we evacuated to Charlottesville, Virginia. We had family there. She said, I vividly remember watching the dev devastation in real time on TV, paying close attention to my mom's sadness and fear. And she says this, I had so many questions that just couldn't be answered. When would I see, now this is an 11-year-old little girl. When would I see my friends again? Was our home okay? It took us about a week after the hurricane hit to hear from a neighbor that our house had completely flooded. That meant we had nothing to return to. Our parents enrolled us, mine and my siblings, into a school in Charlottesville for about 10 months. And then my parents made the decision to go back and live in New Orleans and really, literally rebuild our lives there. And this is what she said that I thought was so amazing to sum up where we're at today. She said, now I'm 26 and I'm still living in New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina taught me the power of resilience, patience, and trust. Without Hurricane Katrina, I would not be the woman I am today. In your time of crisis, you have been molded, you have been shaped, and without that time of difficulty, you wouldn't be who you are today. You thank the Lord for that hard time because now that hard time can be shared with others. And that's your duty. That's our duty today. And it's a hard one. There's a time to grieve with people. There's a time to grieve for yourself. There is a time to bind together, to rally together as God's people. And the last one, as you bow your heads this morning, if you'll stand with me. And the last one is this this morning. I ask you to pray. Man, if there's somebody here this morning that needs a divine appointment from God through prayer, through fasting. Maybe you've already been doing that and you're asking God to save this person. That biggest need may be salvation. So as Matt sings this morning, 
there's the invitation where do you stand today do you need to meet with God is there something that you need to settle up and ask him to take over as Matt sings